Welcome to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DVS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 86th episode. Today's guest is David Marsh. David co-founded in 2009 Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum, better known for its acronym OMFIF. It's an independent think tank for central banking, economic policy, and public investment. Since 2018, David has served as OMFIF's chairperson. Before setting up this think tank, he worked for City Merchant Bank Robert Fleming, corporate finance boutique Hotpoint, German management consultancy Droga, investment firm London Oxford, and many other places, including almost two decades in journalism, spending most of that time with the Financial Times. David has written six books, the last of which is uh, co-authored with William Keegan and Rich Roberts. It's titled Six Days in September, Black Wednesday, Brexit, and the Making of Europe. I think given what has transpired lately, David, that book needs an additional chapter. Welcome to COVID Time, David. Thank you, Tamara. Good to be with you. It is a pleasure to have you, uh, David. Let's start with the very latest and with the caveat that both you and I recognize things can turn stale between the time we record this and the time it comes out. Um, the sterling crisis, David, back in 92 had the pound correcting by about 29% against the U.S. dollar. The latest episode of sterling weakness has transpired over a longer period of time, a much slower moving train wreck, if you will. But the adjustment hasn't been trivial either, almost 25% from peak to trough. Uh, I have a few questions on the ongoing episode for you. First, um, your assessment on the policy actions and the economic conditions that have led to such massive depreciation of the sterling. The whole world is in a mess, and we have a very strong dollar. That's the backdrop. In 1992, we had a relatively weak dollar. Uh, that was one big contrast. Th this time round, the government's uh, failings have been very, very palpable in the UK. Uh, they were, of course, also evident in 1992. That was a failure of judgment about when to go into the exchange rate mechanism. I think that the misjudgments and the pure incompetence this time round has been actually much worse than in 1992. Also, the government was warned. Uh, the Liz Truss's government, and only a short time in office, was warned before the so-called mini-budget on the 23rd of September that this could lead to a big market problem. Uh, they were told by advisors in writing that they would need to watch out about the market reaction, but they were arrogant about this, and they failed to take on board those warnings. So some of this is part of the general uh, rather difficult background we have with the Russian war and the strong dollar. But I would say 80% of this is a self-inflicted wound. And you place the blame with the Prime Minister's office and the Treasury. What about the Bank of England and its role? Is it like going on the opposite direction? There are strong signs that uh, there are. Um, strong conflicts between the Bank of England and the Treasury and the uh, Prime Minister. And this is not good news in a crisis. And we learned that in 1992 and in many other cases. There was actually a surprising amount of coordination in 1992 between the Bank of England and the Treasury. Uh, this time, Liz Truss has been riding roughshod over some of her advisors. Uh, she caused the main official in the Treasury uh, Sir Tom Scholar, to be sacked on day one of her tenure. Uh, this is unprecedented. Uh, this was at the beginning of September. Normally, if prime ministers don't like the top civil servant in the Treasury, they find a way of dislodging that person over time, but not on day one. This was two days before the Queen died. And so it added to the sense of, of uh, uh, great uh, 
change uh, and dislocation. At the Bank of England, uh, uh, just a, a day ago, uh, from the time when we're doing this podcast, uh, did issue a very strong statement about the reasons why it brought in this emergency action, which took place at the end of September, the famous uh, shoring up of the gilts market, and it justified this action on the grounds that there would otherwise have been a huge dislocation with pension funds about sell 50 billion sterling worth of gilts had it not been for the uh, intention which they made, uh, saying that they would buy up to 5 billion of gilts a day over 13 working days. That will run out on the 14th of October. And they're really saying in that letter that there's very strong divergence between what the Treasury is doing uh, under its new leadership, basically led by Truss and the quasi Quatang, the new charts of the Exchequer, and the bank itself. So this is very dangerous for markets when you have the feeling that these two economic actors at different ends of town one in the city, one in Whitehall, are uh, operating on different principles and with a different set of philosophies. This is really very bad news for markets. Is there a middle ground for Whitehall and the city in this context? The unfunded tax cuts, which uh, Liz Truss and her team, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor, uh, unveiled uh, on the 23rd of September, some of this will have to be unwound, I believe. Uh, already we've had a U-turn on the top rate of tax. Uh, uh, she wanted the top rate of tax to be scrapped. She said it was Kwarteng's idea. So in a way, she's throwing him under a bus. That has been unwound. That only would save a relatively small amount of money, two to three billion sterling. That's not a great deal in this context. So I think there'll have to be other measures uh, which will uh, basically reverse some of the moves in the mini-budget. The, the point is the catastrophic fiscal position of the UK has not fully been revealed because uh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister didn't want the Independent Office for Budgetary Responsibility to come out with its forecast at the, at the right time. Which is, so we're operating a bit in the dark. But we do think that these unfunded tax cuts are, are, are going to be extremely difficult to finance and can only be financed at higher gilt prices, hence the big sell-off in the government bond market that we had at the end of September, which has only been partly reversed. So if you're looking for changes, Tamar, as you're saying, then either they have to rescind some of the tax cuts and raise more money by tax, or they have to do a great deal more public borrowing at much yields, which is bad for the economy, or they have to bring in some very unpopular uh, and very socially divisive cuts in public spending. Those are the only three things they can do. And the cuts in public spending, uh, not only would they be unpopular, they would probably also be uh, bad for the economy as well. So either way, in, in all these three areas, they're looking at a pretty difficult position. I think they'll have to do a mixture of all these things. There'll be higher interest rates, there will be some cuts in public spending, but not as regressive and as socially divisive as some of the rather bad indications have uh, have been telling us, and there will have to be some uh, rises in taxes, which goes against the government's philosophy. So in all these three scenarios, we're looking at political and economic problems ahead for Britain. Indeed. Now, David, uh, to play devil's advocate, uh, unfunded tax cuts, this is not the first time in history we have seen the Americans have done that many times. Reaganomics and Arthur Laffer's invention of the Laffer curve have been around for, you know, four or five decades. And sometimes it seems like countries get away with it. 
And other times, even with the best of independent forecasts, the market doesn't, you know, respect their decision to take some heroic uh, fiscal moves. Um, what went wrong for this particular juncture? I mean, you have alluded to the lack of transparency being one that the forecasts were not available. People have been acting in the dark. But then there's also the cyclical weakness. I mean, has this been more of a case of bad timing and bad communication as opposed to the substance being fundamentally bad? Some of the substance you could defend because you could say that Britain's got a relatively strong national balance sheet. Everything is relative, of course, but uh, public debt as a portion of GDP, something like 90% of GDP, that's much higher than anybody would have thought comfortable 30 years ago, but it's still lower than Italy, lower than France, lower than Japan. Clearly, it's a little bit lower than the United States. Sterling, though, is not an international currency in the way the dollar is. And I think that's the salient difference. The Americans can, as we know, fund their deficits through the famous exorbitant privilege uh, that is accorded to the world's number one reserve currency. Britain doesn't have that privilege. So it's a, a strange paradox that we have uh, Mr. Kwateng, he seems to believe that sterling is still the world's number one reserve currency and people will therefore fund the deficit without tears. And that clearly isn't going to happen. So I think it was colossal arrogance, actually, on the part of Trust and Kwateng and some of their advisors or some of the advisors did, as I say, counsel very strongly against this, plus very poor timing, plus uh, an unwillingness to even talk to some market participants beforehand to gauge the reaction. So it, it is uh, hubris and ignorance, I'm afraid to say. Pretty bad combination. David, uh, uh, to your point that the pound is not an international reserve currency, but the city of London still has a sizable footprint in global international finance. Uh, and uh, I worry that what has transpired over the last few weeks, uh, which has been tumultuous for the UK markets, but could be you know, a sign of things to come at a time when global rates are going up. So could you walk us through your sense of the international ramifications? Is the sterling a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, for greater shocks about to hit global markets? Well, I don't know whether it really is telling us about anything about the future. It certainly tells us that the past that we've seen uh, is actually a, a valid yardstick. We've seen this in emerging markets, haven't we? Uh, in Brazil, in, in Turkey, in Mexico, the action crisis of 1997-1998. So it's actually confirming the past. It's also confirming some of the past British episodes. So we we saw the 1976 crisis when Britain had to go to the IMF. We had the 1967 devaluation of sterling, which was the only the denouement of years and years of problems of battling against the current account deficit in the time of, of Bretton Woods. So it's confirming all that past history tells us that uh, finance can be very unstable if you get your sums wrong and if you lose confidence. Uh, the, the worry, of course, is that, uh, as you say, Britain is, uh, from a market point of view, Britain is an important trading place. It's still, without a doubt, the number one financial trading place in, in Europe, despite Britain having left the European Union now a couple of years ago after the referendum in, in 2016. And Britain has taken over from Italy now as being the one big source of instability on the European markets. And it's a bit rich, really, for a Conservative Prime Minister, Liz Truss, who now comes in pledging some kind of stability and a go-for-growth 
strategy that she has become single-handedly the number one source of risk and instability on global financial markets. This is not a good position for a Conservative Prime Minister to be in. So I think it's more telling us the cautionary lessons of the past are justified rather than a pointer to all kinds of unrest in the future. Central bankers have been saying to me, uh, partly uh, in jocularity, partly in sorrow, that what Liz Truss and Quasi Quateng has served up is actually very salutary for the new Italian government, which we think will be led by Giorgio Giorgia Meloni, the far-right leader, because it shows her what not to do. And I'm absolutely sure that Giorgia Meloni and her advisors are looking at Liz Truss and saying, look, this is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Whatever we do, we have to maintain the trust on financial markets. We have to do what we can to show we're going to be good corporate citizens. They may actually have different views altogether, but outwardly, they will be showing a, a good deal of conservatism and a good deal of orthodoxy, not least to curry favour with the credit of countries of Europe who are supplying funds for Italy. And I'm afraid to say that uh, Mrs. Trust forgot that she is a person who relies on the markets to fund the current account deficit. Mark Carney, the previous uh, central bank governor, coined the phrase, which I don't really agree with, but he said uh, Britain relies on, quotes, the kindness of straight quotes to fund its current account deficit. I don't think it's kindness. It's because people think that they can make a yield in Britain. But she's she's gone about it totally in the wrong direction. She hasn't realised she's got a deficit to finance. You've got to be nice to the creditors. You, you shouldn't be arrogant. And that's the lesson that she's failed to comprehend. I hope she does understand this, actually. I do hope that the last few weeks have been salutary. So, David, you have actually partially answered my next question because I was going to ask you, is there a silver lining? And I think from a backhanded way, you're basically saying that it is a cautionary tale and that's a silver lining. We will now have this lesson for the rest of the world, what not to do. Anything else in terms of UK's public finance and the need for fiscal monetary policy coordination? Do you think that the lesson from the past few weeks would galvanize you know, better collaboration? I, I, I think it will. Um, Liz Truss is not totally unintelligent, and she's shown remarkable flexibility over the years. Don't forget she voted to stay in the European Union in the referendum in 2016. She's changed her tune a bit since then. She used to be a member of the Liberal Democrats, uh, which she now abjures. She doesn't like the Liberal Democrats these days. So she's well known for her flexibility. She reminds me a bit of Groucho Marx. He, he said, I'm a man of many principles, and if you don't like the ones I've got now, I have got other ones. So it could be <laughs> that there will be a, a U-turn in her philosophy. I also think it's good that the Bank of England, again, as you say, Tamar, in a slightly backhanded way, has gained a bit of solidity and and credibility through this. Andrew Bailey, the governor, he's been in office now since the COVID crisis started. So it's not been a very happy time for him over the last two and a half years. And there'd be people gunning for him. He's not been without blame, I have to say. There have been some mistakes by the Bank of England. But he's sitting now in a more comfortable position because she's undermined everything else. We have a new monarch, we have a new prime minister, we have a new uh, permanent secretary at the Treasury when they get around to appointing that person. We have a new chancellor of the Exchequer. So I don't think they're going to change or try to force out the governor of the Bank of England at the same time. He's got another five years to go in his mandate, and I think he'll be around. So if you want a, a silver lining, you might have a bit more institutional stability, uh, particularly at the Bank of England. 
and they may be in a better position perhaps to influence policy but i still think it's going to be very very rocky road i'm afraid um david uh, one more question on the sterling crisis before we talk a little bit about europe um and for this i want to bring one uh you know quotation from your book uh in your book you write and you're drawing a parallel between the 97 asian currency crisis in the September 92 crash of the pound, and you write, uh, the root cause was misaligned exchange rates confronting countries with the task of amending monetary conditions for international reasons in a way that contradicted domestic economic and political requirements. Does that parallel work for the UK today? I think it's less for sterling. Uh, Sterling was overvalued without a doubt against the euro and it's gone down a bit against the euro, although nothing like as much as against the dollar. I don't think that we've had a fundamental misalignment of sterling. I think the problem is that we now have, uh, through the strong dollar, uh, a lot of uh, dollar uh, problems through higher interest rates now being transmitted to the emerging market economies. And I do think that those emerging market economies who have now had to suffer uh, quite a large depreciation, they'll be importing inflation. They also have to pay much higher interest rates on their dollar debt. Um, Without a doubt, that's going to cause a huge dislocation for the emerging markets at a time when energy prices have been high, although they do seem to be coming down a bit now. So I think that has been the main issue. Um, Shades of 1997, probably not, because we don't have fixed exchange rates in the way that we did uh, de facto or de jure in 1997-1998. But there has been a very strong devaluation of some of the emerging market currencies, and that will not bring uh, wholly good news. I also think over time that the rise in the dollar will impede American competitiveness and will lead to an overvalued dollar. We've not got there yet. I think that might be partly because American manufacturing has got a lot stronger than we thought. Maybe that's because of technology as well. Yes. Some of the Silicon Valley prowess has been transferred to the old economy part of America. Um, That's why there's one, I think, relatively good piece of news, which is that the American economy is more resilient than many people have felt. They are piling on the interest rate pressure somewhat late, but uh, better late than never at the Fed. America is standing up to that. Uh, So America is, without a doubt, um, showing good signs of being the world's leading economy. The problem is the rest of the world can't quite keep up. David, I want to stick with the sterling one more uh, moment, please. Um, So we don't have the parallel of a fixed exchange rate that was clearly exposed, overvalued, and that needed correction in 92. We didn't have that over the last six to nine months, but the pound nonetheless depreciated by 20, 25%. So if your a priori belief is that the pound was not misaligned and therefore it is a different case now than it was then, wouldn't that then, by extension, make the pound substantially undervalued now, having experienced this depreciation? Uh, I don't think you can say it's undervalued, given the size of the problems that we have and given the fact we don't know how uh, the funding is going to come in. And we don't know uh, much at all about the future because there will be some changes in policies, as I've indicated. The one thing we do know is that interest rates will be higher Uh, in Britain than the government would like. That's going to probably increase the scale of the recession, even though the government is talking about relatively shallow recession. And so the high interest rates, I think, will maintain sterling as a relatively attractive currency. It will not be good news for people who actually live in Britain and have to put up with these higher costs on mortgages and so on. But that's why I'm not fearing an actual sterling crisis. I'm I'm fearing more uh, a 
a recession that will certainly still further undermine the government and will probably lead to a Labour Party victory uh, at the general election. It may happen before two years, but the next general election is due in around two or two and a half years. There may be an election beforehand. So this political instability, I think, will not be good news. But I don't fear a sterling crisis. I, I think the institutions, as we have them, will be ready to withstand that. I do fear um, a lot of political vicissitudes. It could be, though, that a new Labour government might actually end up being a more stable situation than the outgoing Tory government. We saw this, of course, in 1997 when Gordon Brown and Tony Blair came in, and that actually led to quite a good constellation uh, for several years. So uh, you, you can't give up totally on Britain yet, but there will be big oscillations politically, I believe. By all means, uh, David, OK, we'll, we'll switch to Europe now. Um, they are also, you know, confronting all sorts of challenges and uh, somewhat reluctantly, but inevitably, ECB is raising rates and we have monetary policy normalization taking place exactly at a time when the continent is likely heading toward a recession. And talk about sovereign problem, they also have a mountain of sovereign debt to manage. So two sets of questions. First, uh, how are the key institutions of European Union standing up to the threat of war, stagflation, and risks of yet another debt crisis? The, the uh, ECB, as you say, belatedly uh, is raising rates. And at the same time, they brought in this uh, instrument to try to combat fragmentation because you don't need a Nobel Prize in economics to work out that when interest rates go up quite sharply, as they are doing, both short term and longer term, this makes life more difficult for countries like Italy which have got a public uh, debt to, to GDP ratio of 150%. It's obvious that that country is going to suffer more. So they brought in this famous um, transmission protection instrument, which is supposed to mitigate this. This is actually rather akin to the Bank of England's special facility, which they brought in on the 28th of September, this, this gilts purchase instrument. The difference is, though, that the TPI hasn't been spelled out in any detail and hasn't been used, whereas the Bank of England has used it's uh, a special instrument that it unveiled on the 28th of September, although it hasn't used all that much of it, quite cleverly, I think, not used all that much. So there's some weapons in the armament, in the arsenal of the ECB that is not used yet. I don't think the TPI will be used because it's quite difficult for Italy, actually. So I, I believe, there, therefore, that the spreads will continue to rise in between, say, Italy and the German bonds. At the moment, they're about uh, 2.4 percentage points. I think they'll go a bit higher. They'll creep up slowly without re a real sense of crisis. I believe there will be a relatively shallow recession in Germany. Don't forget, Germany is actually throwing the kitchen sink at this. It's using its balance sheet as well, not in a very communitaire way. There's been a lot of criticism of the 200 billion euro package that Germany brought in to safeguard the consumers over this energy crisis. And yet they have stopped so far a, a price cap for energy for Europe as a whole. It's very much a Germany first policy, I'm afraid to say. Uh, and you've seen this on many occasions in the past. Germany does have a pretty uh, nationalistic or certainly a national way of doing things. And this is not good news for the rest of Europe. So the, the, the Bundesbank would like to have still higher interest rates and they'd like to start quantitative tightening. That will not happen uh, because they are worried about Italy. We'll probably still have uh, yields uh, and interest rates in real terms at negative levels next year, I believe, in Europe. The, the ECB will not slam on the brakes big time. They will not be as aggressive as the Fed 
that will have two outcomes. One, it might mitigate the scale of the recession because they will not be so uh, aggressive in monetary tightening as the Americans. And I also think we'll have a relatively weak euro, which could also be quite helpful for the economy. Uh, so I don't foresee a huge crisis in Europe. I think they'll do just about enough to muddle through. But all the old question marks that we've had about monetary union ever since the beginning, you know, the lack of real political union at a time when you've fused together the monies uh, and have got just one single currency, all these old question marks will still be with us, I'm afraid. It'll be a case of further muddling through and a sense that uh, monetary union is still incomplete. And the, and the sense that without a lot of permanent crisis fighting, the monetary union could break up. And that's, again, uh, at a time, time of war in Ukraine, not a comfortable position. But the very fact that there is a war in Ukraine means, I think, that the politicians and the central bank will go the extra mile to put the sticking plaster over this unfinished edifice of monetary union. So I don't actually foresee that it will break up anytime soon, but it does remain a, a long-term question mark. But in the near term, you think that the fragmentation risk coming from a likely debt crisis is mitigated by the unity that is being forced upon Europe because of the threat of war? That's right. Uh, they cannot afford to lose Italy at this time. And of course, Giorgia Meloni knows that. She knows that she's got some strong bargaining cards. The Banca d'Italia is very adept at playing this game. The Germans have already become substantial creditors of, of the euro area through the Target 2 mechanism. That's now one over, well over 1 trillion euros that the Bundesbank has advanced to the ECB, basically to keep the balance of payments going throughout the euro area. So through these mechanisms, there will still be a lot of sticking plaster in place. I think the Germans will have to show a more community-minded attitude actually over energy, and they will have to also probably advance more guarantees and, and more loans of a Europe-wide dimension uh, following on from the next generation EU fund that was agreed two years ago. I think there have to be more such supranational borrowing mechanisms to help Europe through the crisis. And that will not please the purists who say that uh, the EU needs to have a proper political underpinning, and you can't keep going on through these ad hoc measures. Uh, but that would that would involve treaty change to change the whole bedrock of the European Union and actually to make it a proper union uh, and make it a political union. At the moment, uh, there's no likelihood of that happening in any country, that no country would wish to go through the whole upheaval of a treaty change, which will lead to referendums. Many countries would have to lead to constitutional changes in Germany as well as other places. So we'll continue with the sticking plaster, but it'll be pretty messy, I would say. The uh, largesse that the government of Germany is sort of, you know, doling out to its population to deal with uh, high inflation and likely sort of, you know, crunch in energy supply. Um, does that mitigate substantially the risk of recession out of Germany? Or it's still it, a lot it, it certainly, it, it, there, there is a strong sense that um, the recession in Germany will be relatively shallow. I, I, I'm probably not uh, in line with consensus here. Some people are forecasting a, a minus two or minus three percent next year. Um, uh, my relatively sanguine forecast is based on the fact that I think there'll be a relatively mild winter. Obviously, I'm not a meteorologist, but I'm just thinking that. 
global warming is starting to have an effect and therefore the uh, increase in energy prices will also encourage Germans to switch off some of their heating and not use as much energy as well as the relatively mild weather. And I'm also foreseeing some national measures to help out. They're certainly not going to go back to this idea of this uh, fiscal break, uh, which they've got in the Constitution. They'll override that. They will certainly have deficits next year in Germany. And also they've discovered, as all the other countries have discovered, the wonderful way of doing mechanisms outside the budget. This special fund for the defence industry, the 100 billion that Schultz uh, unveiled just a couple of days after the Russian invasion, plus this new 200 billion, a lot of that will be financed off budget. The Germans, of course, are digging a hole for themselves because they've always been the ones who are telling people they should stick to the rules. But sometimes the Germans make rules which are really for others rather than for themselves. Um, so, again, this may not be perhaps the right example to give to uh, Mrs. Meloni when she comes to power. The Italians are very good also at inventing all sorts of inventions and all kinds of subterfuges outside national budgets. We're going to see a lot of that. So, Tamo, you and your colleagues who look at all these things, you'll have a lot of different budgets to study, not just the national budget, but the off-budget mechanisms in lots of European countries. That way, I think Germany will actually escape a really severe recession. And I think that's relatively good news, I have to say. David, for the sake of a thought experiment, let's assume it's going to be a very harsh winter. You know, Even in the context of that, uh, have there been enough safeguards put in place in terms of energy stock, in terms of giving financial war withhold to the likely affected, that even a harsh winter can be dealt with? If we did have a harsh winter, then they would have to be rationing. Uh, there would have to be gas supplies being cut off, say, between 4 o'clock in the afternoon and 12 o'clock at night in uh, big cities. Even worse, a lot of large uh, chemical companies, for example, BASF on the Rhine, the world's biggest chemical company, would have to just, just close down for weeks on end. You can't just close this down for a few hours. You have to close it down for weeks. Uh, they'd have to furlough workers. I'm not saying that there would be civil unrest, but there clearly would be uh, demonstrations in the streets about this in Germany. The German the German government would throw money at it, as it always does, but this could certainly lead to a breakdown of the coalition, for example, in, in that worst-case scenario. Any thought of uh, ECB tightening would have to be put on ice. The balance sheet would continue at a very, very high level. And Putin would uh, clearly feel that he's won a major victory if a uh, large-scale hardship were to take place in Germany and BASF were to close down its plant, say, for three months, uh, which it might have to do in in the worst-case scenario. And there is a, a, a parallel, actually, with 1992 here, uh, Tamu, because you several people in 1992 said uh, Europe is playing, paying the price for German unification. The Germans had to stick up their interest rates in 1991, 1992, um, which did lead to the pound's ejection from the ERM and of course Italy left on the same day as the pound on the 16th of September 1992 and you could mount a case now if you wanted to if you wanted to be relatively harsh on Germany you could say that Europe is paying the price now for German misjudgments because Germany did undoubtedly put too many of its energy eggs into the Russian basket over the last 20 years uh, 55% of all Germany's gas uh, imports, of, of all its gas uh, use, came from Russia uh, on the eve of the invasion. And there's been a tremendous effort by the Germans to 
make up for that by taking gas from other countries, driving up world prices, actually. And some of this is quite unfair. It certainly means that there's less gas to go around for everybody else, particularly the emerging markets. So you could say there's a parallel between German misjudgments uh, over unification and having to finance a lot of this through higher interest rates in 1992, and misjudgments on the energy side here. So again, we come back to the parallels. It's not a perfect uh, way of saying the two episodes are similar, uh, but there are certainly some parallels and some uh, convergences. I would just like us to think we can learn from some of these parallels. So David, we've talked about the context of Germany and Italy in this uh, situation. Uh, what about the rest of Europe, uh, starting with France and perhaps a few other peripheral European countries, both the economics and energy security issues, uh, how do you see them playing out? It's been very uh, interesting to look at France in the last few months because, of course, France has put a lot of effort uh, over the last 50 or 60 years into nuclear energy, the civil use of nuclear energy, very tied up, of course, with the French nuclear deterrent, the military use, has been a leitmotiv of all the governments uh, since the Second World War. And that has really come to a, a pretty sticky point at the moment. Half of the French nuclear power stations are not operable at the moment because of some problems over corrosion, engineering problems, lack of water during the very hot and dry summer. So uh, there's big energy problems in in France as well, there, there would be a good opportunity for more gas sharing out, also using some pipelines from Spain. Spain's got a lot of liquefied natural gas, uh, but that seems to be blocked by various uh, disagreements and squabbles within the European Union. So I would like to think that there could be much more of an energy union between, say, Italy, Spain, uh, France, Germany, and even the UK using the interconnector that we have underneath the English Channel for nuclear exports from France to Germany, uh, sorry, from France to the UK. At the moment, France isn't exporting electricity because of these problems I've mentioned in the in the nuclear side. So I'm not wholly uh, without any kind of confidence in the future here. There could be uh, a new uh, angle here to push forward an energy union in Europe. And I would hope that over the next one to two years, we will see this. We'll see more efforts to share energy. We'll see more efforts to save energy. We will also see more efforts to go further on the renewable energy side. Despite all the problems we know about that, it is relatively cheap. So looking at the longer term, I'm relatively hopeful. It is getting through not just this winter, but the winter 2023-2024 that's going to be problematic. I think Putin has, without a doubt, underestimated the resolve of the West to stand up to the aggression, uh, both militarily. He's probably been surprised by that. Um, he's been surprised by the incompetence of his own army as well. But he's probably also been surprised by relatively large amount of economic solidarity, uh, despite the problems I've mentioned just now. I, I very much hope that that will continue and again, I do think that the sorry state that Britain is in is showing what happens if you go on a go-it-alone, rather arrogant path. I would very much hope that that could have some positive impact on the rest of Europe, and maybe over a longer period of time uh, will have some positive impact on Britain at all, uh, Britain as well. I'm not talking about Britain rejoining the European Union, but I'm very much hoping that there'll be more of an effort by the UK to go into lockstep with 
France, Germany, Italy, and Spain in coming years. Right. We can keep our fingers crossed for that. Uh, David, let's um, zoom away from Europe, UK, and just go above the earth and take a look at the whole world. Uh, how is the outlook looking for next year? Is it pretty dark? The, the American economy is one source of greater confidence. Uh, I do believe that America, despite all its many political problems, is proving itself to be the number one. Uh, therefore, I've got some hope that the locomotive function of America, despite the problems it's causing for emerging markets, uh, uh, will continue to being a relatively stabilizing factor. I would like to think that the European recession will not be as severe as many people think. It will be more of a, a blip. Um, I'm obviously not expecting uh, and certainly not hoping for an escalation, a further escalation in Ukraine. So a lot of these hopes for next year are predicated on a relatively orderly path of the war, if you can use those terms, because I know a lot of the war is absolutely horrible. So... We shouldn't start thinking of this like a uh, like a an economic operation. I'm thinking the war will will carry on for at least another year, but I'm very much hoping it won't lead to uh, a continued escalation, which will mean that nuclear weapons get called in in some way, which clearly would put an end to all our hopes in in very many ways. So I, I'm relatively hopeful there will be more international cooperation. A lot depends on the midterm elections, of course, in the United States and whether or not we see uh, further polarization and a return to Trumpism. So I'm not catastrophically gloomy about the world economy, but there are a lot of caveats in what I've just said. Assuming that the um, war does not exacerbate to the direction of creating uh, renewed bouts of panic about food and energy supply, assuming that doesn't happen, uh, would inflation globally come down substantially in 2023? I think in the United States there's greater feeling that, that it will, simply because we do have a, a lot of uh, uh, monetary aggression in the United States, belatedly so. They are thinking of putting up uh, the Fed funds rate to above 4 5%. Uh, I think if we have that, and assuming the American economy can stand up to that, and also assuming that the energy supply doesn't become too tight for the rest of the world, and assuming the uh, the American ideas for some kind of oil price cap do work, then I could see that we could have a positive inflation shock in the United States towards the end of next year. I think that European inflation will be 6% next year, so we will not see any very rapid fall in the inflation rate in Europe, but it will not continue at double figures. Don't forget, in some parts of the European Union, in the Baltic states, we do have not just double figures, but we have above 20%. So based on uh, a feeling that there will be a greater degree of orderliness in the energy markets, and some of the commodity prices have anyway been starting to fall for several months on end, we will see some fall in inflation, but there's no way that the ECB can get back to its target of 2% uh, by 2024. I think we'll be talking about uh, 6% next year, and maybe if we're lucky, uh, 3 to 4% in 2024 uh, for Europe and a bigger decline in inflation in the United States. And the continued high inflation rate in Europe could have some mitigating effects on Italian debt, because sure. of course that is one classic way uh, of inflating away the debt. If Italy can manage to grow uh, at, say, 
two to three percent over two years, um, and if they continue to have an inflation rate of say six percent, then uh, they they will have a GDP, a nominal GDP rise, let's say of something like fifteen uh, percent over the next two years. That's quite a good way of inflating away some of the excessive debts that they have. This is not something that European Central Bankers like to talk about in public because, of course, it goes against the grain to say you're using inflation to uh, lower the debt problem. But behind the scenes, European Central Bankers are saying sotto voce that that could be a positive side effect of high inflation. It might make the debt position of some of the over-indebted states, principally Italy, uh, a bit less parlous. Absolutely, David. I mean, this is one issue where it is very close to my heart that I believe that from a policymaker's perspective, given the mountain of debt we have in the world, the, the risk of substantially lower nominal expansion is far greater than, you know, substantially higher nominal expansion, be it through stagflation or just through robust growth. Uh, I think the denominator effect is very important, it's very important to sort of keep the debt deflation risk away. And so I think if I, if for me, you know, I, w- I would err on the side of inflation as opposed to the side of deflation. Um, David, uh, you end uh, your book, Six Days in September, which I highly recommend to the listeners of Kobe Time. Uh, and you have this rather meta observation at the end. The tangled and tragicomic tale of Black Wednesday provides a warning of how great plans can go awry. So here we are in 2022. Which great plans are at risk of going awry today? Well, well, first of all, just to clarify what I meant by that, it, the, the, the problem about the British membership of the ERM was that it did it for totally different reasons compared with those that were there on the continent. So Britain entered the ERM simply to get inflation down and also to get interest rates down. That was why Mrs. Thatcher rather grudgingly agreed with John Major to do that. On the continent, they saw it totally differently. They saw the ERM as being, if you like, the the front window or the waiting room for monetary union. So you had these two countries or two sets of countries doing the same thing for totally different reasons. Uh, and that's what caused it all to come unstuck in the end. And and that is a danger, I think, that people for all kinds of political and economic reasons carry out a certain policy, but for uh, reasons of principle or philosophy, which are entirely divergent. And, and that is the tangle that you get yourself into. Now, I think if you take today's situation and say, take global warming, um, there is a consensus that global warming is on the whole man-made, and there's a consensus that we should be doing all kinds of things to try to uh, mitigate the rise in temperatures, uh, and that's why we have all these summits and so on. But people are actually doing all this for totally different reasons. and, And of course, they're reversing this now. Look at the amount of money going into coal mining these days. So, that's how these great plans can go awry. Firstly, uh, different countries doing what seems to be the same policy for a whole set of different political and economic reasons, some of which is very domestically driven. And then plans getting upset by what Harold Macmillan, the former British Prime Minister, calls events, events, dear boy, events, events getting in the way of grand plans. Uh, German unification got in the way of the plan to keep interest rates low, for example, in in uh, Europe. And in the same way, you have a war in Ukraine getting in the way of global warming uh, efforts to counter climate change because people have been going back along the coal route now very extensively. 
um, so that's the danger, I think, that these plans do get derailed. And I think the uh, fight against climate change is a good case in point. That has been derailed by the efforts to get back into coal mining, in not just in uh, Europe, but much greater extent in India and in China. That is going to be a real setback, I have to say. You could say over time renewable energy will come and rescue us all. That's a relatively small part of the world, i.e. Europe, is making efforts on that. But look at India and China. So that's what I mean about grand plans going awry. And it's, it, I think, goes much deeper than the relatively small issue about Britain and the ERM 30 years ago. There, there's a much greater global action over climate change, which is now being seriously put at risk by the perturbations we saw in the world economy. So Britain and the ERM, that clearly is a sideshow, is intellectually and politically and economically interesting, but it's a it's a footnote in history uh, compared with the much, much more massive uh, actions and the much more massive campaign to try to counter climate change. And that is the big worry. I think that, that that's going to be uh, substantially undermined and diverted by the aftermath of the war in Ukraine. So I just hope we can find a way of getting back on track on that question without losing too much time, which would be uh, causing the world irreparable damage. Um, very critical piece of insight, David. I mean, thank you very much. And uh, I really appreciate it because it is a cautionary tale for the various grand plans that we have, which we believe that, you know, there is a global consensus to implement. But uh, events, shocks, they get in the way. And I think that's where the importance of planning with shocks in mind come in. Uh, David Marsh, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for your time and insights. Thank you, Taima. All the best to you. Goodbye. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, Copy Time was produced by Ken Delbridge from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional production assistance. Copy Time is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 86 of the podcasts are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.